Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on double one nine two five kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, a DRC's electoral body reassures voters about the use of electronic voting machines. Cameroon warns against the release of classified information on social media and crisis looms in Nigeria as health workers threaten to go on strike. In economics news, more foreign oil companies expected to invest in Zambia. And in sports news, Japanese runner wins men's Boston Marathon. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The Democratic Republic of Congo has sacked more than 250 magistrates who did not have a law degree or are accused of corruption. Justice Minister Alexis Tambwe Mwamba says President Joseph Kabila has sanctioned more than 200 individuals who do not fulfill the conditions to function as magistrates. Press reports say a total of 256 were either suspended or sacked, two others resigned, while another was put on retirement. The DRC has about 4,000 magistrates. The Electoral Commission has meanwhile reassured Congolese that the upcoming elections will run smoothly. There have been reservations on the use of voting machines the DRC Electoral Commission has brought in. Shanuel Bamweza reports from the capital, Kinshasa. The voting machine has really divided the people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, including political actors, civic society members and even people on the streets. The machines are being supplied by a South Korean company, but indeed, the embassy of South Korea here in Kinshasa has said the South Korean government has instructed the company to stop supplying those machines as they create a misunderstanding among Congolese. Some political parties from the opposition have come together in a coalition and rejected the use of the machines. Most of the civil society organizations have rejected them as well. Meanwhile, three commissioners from Kenya's Electoral Commission have resigned over the suspension of the chief executive officer who was sent on compulsory leave. This to pave way for wider investigations into the conduct of the commission in last year's elections. The three say the vote to suspend Ezra Chiluba was not done properly. Kenya's opposition claimed some commissioners in Kenya's six-member electoral authority were complicit in electoral fraud in the August 8, 2017 election in which Uhura Kenyatta was declared the winner, but was then nullified by the Supreme Court. Chiluba was suspended during the repeat October 26 election after opposition protested his involvement. Kenyatta won the repeat election after opposition leader Raila Odinga boycotted it, citing lack of electoral reforms. 
The 14 Nigerian nationals accused of drug peddling and running brothels in Rustenburg in South Africa's northwest province are expected to appear in the regional court for bail application this morning. They were arrested earlier this year after people stormed a police station demanding protection. This followed a spate of violent attacks on foreign nationals suspected of drug dealing and prosecution. During the clash between locals, taxi operators and foreign nationals, one Nigerian was killed. Some of the 14 suspects have either pending cases or are in the country illegally. And finally, Raul Castro will stand down as president of Cuba this week. At 86, he has governed the country for over a decade, taking over from his brother, the late Fidel Castro. Between them, the Castro brothers have spent almost 60 uninterrupted years in power on the communist-run island. But now, Enan Castro is about to take the helm for the first time since 1959. The BBC's Will Grant reports from Cuba's capital, Havana. The island's education system continues to emphasize many of the same socialist teachings it has since the revolution took power in 1959. But here, in the Baptist community in Trinidad, an equally rigorous process of religious instruction is going on, both at home and in Bible study classes, like the ones taking place around the building. That's the latest news. Thank you, Amanda. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A DRC's independent National Electoral Commission has reassured prospective voters that the use of electronic voting machines in the long-delayed elections will not cause problems. The DRC opposition is fiercely opposed to these machines on the grounds that they would pave the way for fraud in the December election. Januel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The voting machine has really divided the people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, including political actors, civil society members, and even people on the streets. The machines are being supplied by a South Korean company, but indeed, the embassy of South Korea here in Kinshasa has said the South Korean government has instructed the company to stop supplying those machines as they create a misunderstanding among Congolese. Some political parties from the opposition have come together in a coalition and rejected the use of the machines. Most of the civil society organizations have rejected them as well. The Catholic Church bishops have called on a consensus as far as the use of those voting machines is concerned and expressed the concerns saying elections might be compromised and this would lead to chaos if no agreement is found on the use of the voting machines. But the Independent National Electoral Commission doesn't see any problem here as far as transparency is concerned. The commission has called on Congolese to remain calm and stop worrying about the upcoming elections. According to the deputy chairman of the Electoral Commission, Norbert Basengesi, everything will be clear and the vote will be transparent as the voter's result will be immediately printed. You'll have to compare the vote print the result with the manual result to make sure both votes have given same result. 
This has never been done in the world. It's a new Congolese experience and that's indeed a guarantee for both the majority and the opposition. Meanwhile, all the political parties have already filed their list to the Independent National Electoral Commission and what the commission is waiting for is the list of candidates to the upcoming elections. Most of political parties are busy preparing their militants for the elections as the Independent National Electoral Commission plans to hold the three elections the same day next December. Those elections expected on December 23rd are the presidential, the national parliamentary and the provincial parliamentary and indeed this opposition leader who is also the general secretary of Jean-Pierre Bemba's movement of liberation of Congo is optimistic. F. Basaiba. I'm sure that we are now in the way of election. All the list of political parties going to the Senate now. And then so about the time, we're still waiting on the 24th on June. We're waiting for those who are going to give the electoral list to run for office. Now I'm ready to go to the election because uh, we're preparing. We know that as the leader now, the political leader now, they are not able to lead the country. We want the change and the change can come. Some people on the streets have told the Channel Africa they are now doubtful and they are not really sure elections will be held as expected this year here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Cameroon is warning its workers against what it calls the illegal release of classified and confidential information on social media. Several staff have either been arrested or are being investigated for sharing top military secrets and information from the president's office. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. Many staff moved to the notice board of Cameroon's Ministry of Communication to read a circular from the country's Prime Minister Philemon Young warning government officials of what it calls the prejudices confidential documents leaked on social media is causing both to state documents, state administration and security. The circular signed in March this year instructs state officials and staff to be discreet in the management of mail services and secure information circulating as required by the public service rules. Louise Marie Beignet, delegate of the Ministry of Communication in the country's northwest region, says before the March 5 senatorial election, he was victim of leaked information. I just wanted to inform my collaborators that all political programs were suspended during senatorial election. Unfortunately, Many people called me, informed me that the document was already on Facebook. You have to inform the population on the use of the social media because it has taken another dimension. It's very, very dangerous. It's nothing is being done. It's going to be very, very harmful. Several government officials have complaints of information being leaked on social media. President Bia's traditional end-of-year messages and his address to the youth on the occasion of the 11th February National Youth Day, were on Facebook and WhatsApp before they were delivered. Last month, confidential information from Cameroon President's office, ordering a travel ban for dozens of people suspected to have stolen state funds, found itself on social media platforms. Cameroon said a former minister, 
who saw his name on the leaked document disguised and escaped to neighboring Nigeria before he was arrested and brought back home. In 2016, panic gripped Cameroon's capital Yaoundé after a confidential letter from the country's defense minister, Joseph Betty Asomu, to top military officers stating that Boko Haram terrorists had arrived in the city leaked to social media. The letter to top military officers called for vigilance and additional deployment of troops to ministerial buildings and public areas such as markets, churches and schools. Military officials said the leak occurred because of lapses in their information system. Here at a documentation center at Avenue Kennedy, a popular street in Yaoundé, many government workers are either printing or typing documents from their offices. Information technology specialist Peter Suife says besides the bad faith of some workers who leak classified information, some of it finds itself in the public space through public documentation centers. You have government offices that have computers. The operators of these computers don't know how to probably store some documents in their files. When they type, they take the key to a documentation for printing. After printing, they are supposed to cancel what they have printed in that documentation rather than align in the machine. Tomorrow you see the documents already on streets before the, the states ever make a statement. The government says several suspects have been arrested and will be facing the law. Henry Kemende Gamse, a lawyer based in the northwestern town of Bamenda, says Cameroon law punishes defaulters. Under section 300 uh, sub 1, you are punished with imprisonment from 15 days uh, to one year or with a fine of from 5,000 to 100,000 francs or both such fine and imprisonment. Henry says it is imperative for the government to educate the population, especially state workers, on the sensitivity sharing classified and confidential information since most of it is done in ignorance. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Let us all unite and celebrate together. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us It is 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's ruling ANC says the accusations made by EFF Chief Com- Commander-in-Chief Julius Malema against its senior members are false. 
at Struggle Starwatt, Mama Winnie Madigizela Mandela's funeral. Malema mentioned a number of incidents where he said various people had turned against the Starwatt. Among them were the 11 Women's League members who resigned in 1995 when Madigizela Mandela was president. Some of the women called a press briefing, but the ANC cancelled it. Angela Bulwana reports. Some of those who sold out to the regime are here. And what is funny, Mama, is that they are crying the loudest, more than all of us who cared for you. It might be a joke on Twitter, but the ANC is not amused by the allegations EFFCIC Julius Malema made. Mama, the UDF cabal is here. The cabal that rejected you and disowned you and sent you to the brutal apartheid regime is here. The UDF called a press briefing in 1989 to distance itself from Madigizela Mandela, mainly because of her refusal to disband the infamous Mandela Football Club in Soweto. But it was not just the UDF under fire. Mama, the same people who shot us by not allowing you to pay tribute to the late Pitamukaba at his funeral, despite the fact that you molded his politics in the South African Youth Congress and the ANC Youth League. But it was these allegations that some senior members of the ANC wanted to address. All those who resigned from the NEC of the Women's League because they said they cannot be led by a criminal, they are here. Some of them, some of them, some of them are playing prominent roles in your funeral, in a funeral of a person they called a criminal, in a funeral of a person they were ready to humiliate in front of the whole world. They are here, ma. Ma, 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 I'm waiting for a signal on how we should treat them. On Monday, some of the women called a press briefing to confront the allegations, but the ANC stopped them. Deputy Secretary General Jesse Duarte says this is because it is the ANC that must defend its senior members. She says the organization cannot let its members defend themselves one by one. We intervened uh, with, the, with, the, with the women who wanted to be here today. In fact, they're in the building, and we have advised them, as the NWC and the officials, that we didn't think it was appropriate for them as senior cadres of this movement to defend themselves against an, an accusation that wasn't even factually correct. The women being accused include Nosivue Mapisa Ngakula, who was the MC at the funeral, Bale Gambete and Nomvula Mukonyani, who was the MC at the memorial. Duarte says not only are the accusations inaccurate, but there was a lot of acrimony in the Women's League at the time. Duarte says at the time of their resignation, the court had not made a judgment against Madikizela Mandela, therefore they could not have resigned because she was a criminal. Duarte says they will wait for the right time to clear the women as the nation is still in mourning. Although the Julius Malema challenge has been a joke on Twitter, the women are clearly not taking it lightly. We mentioned these incidences, few incidences, just to make them aware that we know what they did to you. They must never think we have forgotten what they did to you. We see you in your beautiful suits, betrayers, sellouts. 
That's Julius Malema, leader of South Africa's opposition party, the EFF, ending that report by Angela Bulwana in Johannesburg. The Gupta family's properties in South Africa are now under curatorship after the NPA obtained a restraining order in the Bloemfontein High Court. The curator visited the Saxonwold Gupta compound and is also expected to attach more properties totaling 250 million rand. The family and their businesses have been implicated in the Estina Dairy Farm theft and money laundering case. Didaba Dotezi has more. The order follows the arrest of several prominent people, including members of the Gupta family. The assets of the Gupta family will be held pending the outcome of the criminal cases. If convictions follow, the unit will apply to have these assets confiscated and the proceeds forfeited to the state. The National Prosecuting Authority confirmed that the restraint order was being effected at the Gupta Saxonwald compound at the NPS Luvuyom Fagu. What the curator does, he goes to a property and explains to the people there that the property is under restraint and he compiles an inventory of all the assets and value the assets and then tell them that they cannot dispose of the assets or the property as they wish the property is under curatorship that's basically they did not go out today with anything they leave everything back mfaku says that the assets are forming part of the restraint order include the immovable property residential and business premises two aircraft a helicopter vehicles and bank accounts belonging to Bay investment Iceland site investment, confident concepts, Sahara computers. And that's Luvuyom Faku from South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority ending that report by Ditaba Zotezi in Johannesburg. It is 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Speaker of South Africa's Northwest Province Legislature, Susan Suzanne Janji, has postponed the motion of no confidence in Premier Supra Mahumabil. The motion, which was brought by the opposition EFF, was supposed to have been debated in the provincial legislature in Mahigeng today. The EFF proposed the motion last month after the Hawks raided the Premier's offices. The raids followed allegations that an IT company, Nepo Data Dynamics, was irregularly paid more than 215 million rand. Patrick Dindua reports. The decision to postpone the motion was taken late last night. It came in the wake of the EFF's agent court application to halt the sitting of the legislature this morning. The EFF wants the voting in the motion of no confidence to be conducted through a secret ballot. This, they say, was in order to protect ANC members of the provincial legislature who are willing to support their motion. However, after consultation, the speaker then postponed today's sitting. Spokesperson for the Northwest Legislature, Tebokachane, elaborates. We just wish to communicate the decision of the Speaker that the sitting that is scheduled for this morning is being postponed on request of the EFF as the sponsors of the motion of no confidence in the Premier uh, due to their intended uh, launching of an agent application at the High Court to seek a declaratory order forcing the Speaker to proceed with this motion with secret ballot. 
the EFF in the province, has welcomed the decision. EFF leader in the province is Betidiale. We have always said it is our EFF-sponsored motion. We are only going to proceed with it when it is allowed to be in secret, unless it's the court decision that's otherwise. Now, we are happy to say the motion will then proceed once the court processes have been finalized. We are finalizing those processes. We'll be serving the speaker with court documents. We are proceeding with court processes. Once that is finalized, then the motion can then go ahead. Meanwhile, the ANC National Working Committee is scheduled to visit the province tomorrow. This is to intervene on the challenges facing the Northwest. They include, amongst others, alleged rampant corruption, infightings and divisions within the ANC. Convener for the ANC National Deployees in the Northwest, Obed Bapela. The NWC uh, of the ANC will be coming to the Northwest on, on Wednesday so that we'll be then be engaging further now on the issues raised so that issues that have been raised can be organizationally dealt with. Bapela says they hope the intervention of the national leadership will assist the party in the Northwest to perform better during next year's general elections. I'm Patrick Dintua reporting in Mahikeng. The speaker rather eradicating smallpox and stepping up immunizations to prevent malaria, polio and other global killers are just some of the accomplishments of the World Health Organization, which turned 70 this month. The UN agency shows no signs of slowing down as it assists countries with combating the rise in diseases such as cancer and diabetes or to respond to outbreaks and epidemics. Ren Mingui, the Assistant Secretary General at WHO, explains. Eradicating smallpox and stepping up immunizations to prevent malaria, polio and other global killers are just some of the accomplishments of the World Health Organization, WHO, which turned 70 this month. The UN agency shows no signs of slowing down as it assists countries with combating the rise in diseases such as cancer and diabetes or to respond to outbreaks and epidemics. Siwen Xian has been speaking to Ren Mingui, the Assistant Secretary General at WHO, which is based in Geneva. From the very beginning... WHO has brought together the world's leading health experts to produce international reference materials, guidance and policy recommendations to improve people's health. I'll just give you a few of examples. Uh, international classification of disease, you know, that's a very, very important document can enable all the countries to use the common standard for reporting disease, identifying health trends. You know, in the earlier decades, there was... Uh, a uh, strong focus on fighting infectious killers like uh, smallpox, malaria, polio, and dif- uh, diphtheria. And so we established uh, expanded programs on immunization in earlier uh, 1970 to scale up the immunization programs around the world. Today, the immunization is one of the very important and most cost-effective ways to prevent deaths and improve lives. It is estimated about one to three billion lives every year are saved by vaccines. We reached the target of eradication of smallpox in 1980s. That's a really big achievement in the, in the history of public health. And after that, uh, we pushed a lot for universal uh, children immunization uh, programs to cover more vaccine preventable diseases, including polio and uh, uh, measles, rubella, 
and maternal and neonatal tenderness. And for the polio eradication, which has been uh, launched in 1990s, now big achievement actually we see the global incidence of polio has decreased by 99.9 percent. And for this year, only get 10 cases report globally. So we almost reached the target of eradication polio. I think that's great uh, sort of achievements made by WHO and all the partners in the world. In recent decades, we have seen uh, a rise in non-communicable diseases, such as cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. And these diseases now account for 70% of all mortality around the world. It's quite huge, actually. Uh, non-communicable diseases are, uh, therefore, the key priority for WHO. In recent years, um, the Global Committee has seen several disease outbreaks, such as Ebola, uh, yellow fever. What sort of role does WHO play during um, global disease outbreaks or other cross-border health emergencies? WHO strengthens our capacity to respond to the disease outbreaks and cross-border health emergency, especially after Ebola. We learn a lot of lessons. Now, WHO health emergency program address all uh, full risk management cycle, meaning it works with countries to address emergency before they happen by working on prevention and preparedness, and also helps in response to the emergency. And once the initial event has passed, we provide our system of recovery uh, for the country. For instance, we, we, we provide a lot of technical support, early warnings, risk assessment, and emergency response. For instance, when we can report from the country, we do a, a quick risk assessment, see whether uh, we need to announce some global international concern message to all the member states. If it's not like that risky, we, we will work with country and maybe partners to provide some preventions and, uh, and services, to uh, even the procurements to the country. And we know actually outbreaks are inevitable, but uh, we also understand uh, epidemics are preventable. What are the major public health challenges facing the world right now, and uh, what are WHO sort of doing to try to combat them? I think there's uh, quite a lot of challenges, you're absolutely right. And the uh, first important challenge is in uh, housing equity. Almost half our population globally don't have access to the essential medicines and the essential health services. It is quite a lot. Of course, we, we have lots of threat. Uh, to global health. For this year, we identify uh, about 10 uh, threats to global health. Number one is pandemic influenza. Number two is health in conflict. Number three is corona. And number four is diphtheria. Uh, and then the malaria, natural disasters, uh, meningitis, and the yellow fever, malnutrition, and food poisoning. So all tens is such important for us to take care. And now we understand uh, because uh, that risk is always there. The only something we can do is to strengthen ourselves. As I said, that's why it's the most important challenge is how exactly we can work with countries and, and partners and peoples to build our own system and to have more political commitment and financial support to the health system strengthening. That was Ren Mingui, the Assistant Secretary-General at the World Health Organization, speaking to UN Radio's Siven Hian. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. In the headlines, the Democratic Republic of Congo sacks more than 250 magistrates. South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority sends a stern warning to those who are implicated in state capture. And Facebook makes another damning confession. I'll have details on these and other stories at the top of the hour. Thank you, Amanda. The levels of chronic malnutrition are very high in Mozambique. This is according to the recent study by the Technical Secretariat for Food Security and Nutrition, together with the World Food Programme. The cost of hunger in Africa study shows that the country loses more than 10% of its annual gross domestic products due to malnutrition. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by WFP Mozambique Country Director Karin Manente. Good morning, Karin, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Very nice to be in your program. Now, what could be attributed to the high levels of uh, malnutrition in Mozambique? Well, there are a number of reasons, and malnutrition is actually quite a multidimensional problem. Uh, For example... Expedious economic, people cannot afford, don't have economic access to a healthy diet. In some cases, it's because even if they have the the money to buy the food, they're not fully aware of what constitutes a healthy diet, so they may not eat enough proteins like meat and pulses or eggs. Or it may also be just the lack of uh, knowledge about what you need to drink clean water so you don't get stomach and diarrhea problems because when you do, you lose a lot of the nutrients that you eat. So it's a combination of poverty, knowledge, and just general living conditions. So it's very important that in every context, we identify what the main sort of drivers are, and then we identify as well what we can do about them. Now, how effective have uh, the interventions aimed at making nutritious diets more available and then accessible to most vulnerable families over, that have been going through it over the past few years? Well, I think there is progress and there is more and more recognition of the sort of integrated approach that is needed. And there is a government program to, for the reduction of chronic malnutrition that foresees the participation of various sectors and contributions in various ways. And so this plan, this government program, aims to reduce chronic malnutrition from the current around 43% of the country to 35% of the country. So we're hoping to be able to measure where we are in that regard in the coming uh, year or so. But I do see, I've just traveled, uh, last week I came back from two of the northern provinces, and I met not only um, sort of the work being done at community level, but also the work being done by the private sector, for example, by producing fortified foods. So now in the country, for example, when you buy a vegetable oil, all of the vegetable oil that is sold is fortified with vitamins and minerals. So that is already a way as well to reach a broad part of the population with that kind of intervention. So we will still measure it this year or next year. Uh, It's in the plans, and so we hope to see an improvement. But we do see uh, uh, really sort of uh, recognition of the problem and the, the work of various actors and partners with the government leadership to tackle it.
Now, in terms of government leadership, what's their reaction been like? And in terms of their involvement, are they getting involved and getting down to the nitty gritties and ensuring that uh, their people and the nation um, understands what malnutrition is and uh, tries to assist in, in, in dealing with it? Oh, absolutely. It's one of the priorities in the government's five-year plan to reduce chronic malnutrition. And in fact, you see that happening. I mean, you see, for example, I mean, on television last night, there was a program about what the government is doing in one of the districts in the Tete province about it. And uh, it facilitates a lot of the work of the partners, various partners as well. There's a lot of work and engagement by the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of uh, uh, Agriculture and Food Security, and others. So absolutely, it's a national priority, and there's a lot of work being done in that respect. And what recommendations are there to help curb malnutrition? Well, coupled to the study that we did on the cost of hunger, we also did a study called Fill the Nutrient Gap, which identifies what are the nutrient gaps uh, at provincial level and what are the kind of interventions that can be done that are the most cost-effective to curb this issue, to curb this problem. And so now we, are, this, we launched the study also last week here in Maputo, and this week and the next week we have teams going out to each provinces to have this discussion at provincial level so that at provincial level they can identify what are the key interventions and also the kind of uh, incentives that can be done. For example, there's one province where we see there's simply not enough production of protein-based foods like cattle, pulses, dairy products. There simply isn't. So then we have to look into how can we incentivize, bring more of that into the province, and what kind of social protection programs can also complement that. And very quickly, um, Karen, in terms of the people themselves, how are they reacting to everything, all the initiatives that you're coming up with and um, you know, ensuring that they as well try to empower themselves? Absolutely. One of the things that I did last week when I was in the north, in the district of, in the province of Nampula and Cabo Delgado, I also saw some of the community-based uh, work that we're doing, led by national, uh, the local committees for health, which is under the umbrella of the Ministry of Health, and local activists. And there, so it's not only support given in terms of fortified food and things like that in some cases when needed, but there's also all the social behavior modification programs where we involve these actors like the activists and the community health uh, workers to engage the local community in their own language and in their own culture based on their own sort of how they live and what they eat and their beliefs. So we engage with them and we discuss, have debates with them and discuss with them so that we really, and then also we, we uh, perpetuate these messages also through community radios. There's a lot of community engagement being done, led by the, by the Ministry of Health and other partners, and to, to get the communities and the people talking and understanding and, uh, and, and changing their habits. I remember last week I, I was at a community, 
And the, one of the ladies, she raised her hand. They were talking in their own languages with the, with the health worker and the activists. And one of the ladies from the community raising her hand and saying, oh, I used to think I couldn't eat eggs when I was pregnant. Now I will start doing so because everybody's saying we have to do so and it is healthy and we have eggs here. So these are the kind of things that we're also imparting at, with the population at community level. So bit by bit, they start also taking up more healthy eating uh, practices. And very quickly, Karen, as we wrap up, um, in terms of timeframes, are there any timeframes that you've put in place in ensuring that you reach a certain target or a certain number of people within a certain time frame, or is it just going to be a step at a time? Well, the national t- uh, target is to reduce it fr- to f- for 35, chronic malnutrition to 35% by 2019. That's what our, all, our whole effort is working towards. And so we have a range of, like on, on social behavior change, the World Food Program will reach about 15,000 people a year. Other partners also reach a lot of people. We're also providing, for example, the fortified vegetable oil I was mentioning before in this program that reaches 7.5 million people per year. So we ha- depending on the program, we have targets. But overall, we're all fun- falling under the umbrella of the national targets, which we're all doing our contributions to help fulfill. Karen, all the best in your program, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Lulu. That's Karen Manente, World Food Program, Mozambique Country Director, joining us on the line. Channel Africa. Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Members of the Nigerian Joint Health Sectors Workers Union, Johesu, have called out its members to embark on an indefinite strike in protest against poor pay and alleged discrimination by government and healthcare managers. President of the union, Josiah Biobe Limonye, says government has been too slow to respond to agreements reached and submitted to it for approval six months ago. Channel Africa's Collins Atohengbe reports from Lagos. Jesu unions hereby direct all members in federal health institutions all over the country to commence the strike immediately at midnight of Tuesday, 17th April 2018, unfailingly. That was the servo that registered the commencement of the nationwide strike by paramedics and professional health workers in federal government hospitals across Nigeria. The action means a minimum of 70% of health workers in Nigeria would have done tools by now and are not at their duty posts until the strike is called off by the union executives. The strike, as it turned out to be, is not quite fresh because it has its root in the decision taken six months ago by the union when it first called out members over what it called government's discriminatory treatment of non-direct medical workers in the health sector. They are not impressed with the situation where medical doctors who spend equal number of years in training with some of the professionals in its ranks are given better attention than members of 
Jehosu. The National Vice Chairman of the Union, Obona Obina, says Nigeria's healthcare system has suffered tremendous and avoidable decline for lack of proper attention. Our regulatory bodies are trying to float residency programs for ourselves because we need experts who are well grounded in their specialties. But if the government is not thinking in that direction and is now trying to show overture to a particular set of group alone, that is not the team spirit in Joesu Group. We have people who train for six years as well, like the optometrists, like the pharmacists now we have D-Farm, the medical laboratory scientists are now training for six years, the physiotherapists are training for six years. Why not also give them that same treatment? In 1962 or thereabout, Nigeria head system was ranked third among the committee of uh, Commonwealth nations. Today, we are ranked 187 out of 190, third from the rear. And even at that period, the king of Saudi Arabia came to Nigeria to be attended to twice. But today, we are the ones going for medical tourism. Giving details of the reason for the strike, despite past talks, the president of the union, Josiah Bio Belemonye, says government has not been forthcoming with agreements reached and that the union is not accorded recognition like the doctors whose agreement was signed and approved within 15 days of reaching a consensus even though they were submitted at the same period. Uh, to keep the record straight on touch yet, September last year, we entered into an agreement that should have been fulfilled in five weeks. And six months, and still counting, it has not been fulfilled, especially cardinal issues like the adjustment of the current salary structure and the payment of co- uh, the skipping arrears. So we have no alternative. About meetings, we gave 21 days mm-hmm. ultimatum to which nothing was done. Then, because we were still mindful of Nigerians, the plight of Nigerians, we decided to now give a lavish 30 working days, which culminates into 45 days. Yet, government did not do anything until 5th of this month, April. Another province noted, saying, uh, we are looking into the matter, we are trying to source funds. We want to remind Nigerians that same time last year, on the 6th precisely, the government entered into an agreement led by Mr. Fed, with the doctors. And within 15 days, from the 6th to 21st, it was good enough for the president to sign or approve and then structure release. At the press briefing, which followed the open-air demonstration in front of their office, Bayo Belemonye, after reading out the directives for the commencement of strike action, took time to look at the possibility of shaving action that report by Collins Atohengbe in Lagos. Our economics update up next with Tabisol Hoku. Good morning. Zimbabwe's tax revenue has risen 29% to 1.1 billion US dollars during the first quarter of the year, citing better tax compliance and an improving business environment under new president Emerson Mnangagwa. The Southern African nation has not been able to access a foreign funding since 1999 when it defaulted on its debt, hobbling the economy and making tax collections crucial for financing the government budget. Zimbabwe Revenue Authority says gross and net revenue collections were above last year's levels for the same period. An indication of an improving operating environment for business and effective enforcement. 
The diamond industry in Namibia has reached another milestone following the opening of a new cutting and polishing factory by Sky Investments in the capital Venthook. Sky is owned by the Hong Kong-based KGK Group. The opening of the factory is in line with the government's value addition drive, envisioned with the signing of the new sorting, valuing sales and marketing agreement between the Namibian government and De Beers in May 2016. The agreement facilitated the supply of rough diamonds to site holders for cutting. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says he's optimistic that the ambitious plan that he unveiled on Monday will improve the country's sluggish economy. The plan involves a global initiative to attract 100 billion US dollars in investment over the next five years. Total fixed investment in the economy stood at 24% of gross domestic product in 2008, but it declined around 19 last year. The National Development Plan says South Africa needs to increase investment to at least 30% of its GDP by by 2030, Ramaphosa has appointed a team of special envoys to help realize this. Trevor Manuel, who is known to all of us as former Minister of Finance, is going to be my uh, investment envoy. Uh, Mr. Mkabisi Jonas, former Deputy Minister. Mr. Jacob Marie, a Chairman of Liberty and former CEO of Standard Bank. And the person who is not here, who couldn't join us, is Pumzile Langeni. She's the chairperson of Afroplans. I'm also pleased to announce the appointment of Ms. Trudy Makaya as my economic advisor. And now she's going to work with the envoys. And as my economic advisor, she's going to be responsible for coordinating the work of these special envoys. Political risk advisory firm EXX Africa says there is mounting evidence that Zambia has miscalculated its total debt. The firm says the country's external debt could be as high as 15.16 billion US dollars, while local debt seems almost incalculable given the opacity in lending to state-owned entities from local banks. EXX Africa director Robert Besseling explains. The initial rumors, in fact, came from a number of uh, construction companies and banks operating in Zambia, which which had heard rumors of uh, undisclosed debt. Uh, And we flagged this to our clients last year. And in December, we received a number of documents from uh, our sources within Zambia's central bank and the finance ministry, who essentially uh, are rather concerned with the situation at the moment, uh, that simply the balance of payments are not adding up, uh, and that Zambia has uh, maybe not hidden, but at least is unaware of its current debt situation. Let's say it. The U.S. dollar trades at 947 Botswana Pula, 949 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar trades at 342 Brazilian Rail, at 6203 Russian Rubble, 6528 Indian Rupee, 627 Chinese Yuan, 1206 dollars to the South African Rand. It's also trading at 69 pence to the British pound, 80 cents to the euro. Gold on thousands, three four five dollars. Platinum nine two eight dollars per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at seven one dollars six seven cents a barrel. Channel Africa
Our sports updates up next with Figile Nungwati. In this hour, we begin with rag- rather boxing news. Current World Boxing Organization WBO Bantamweight Champion Zolan Lasbonte, this trainer, Lois Omkia, says preparations for the 30-year-old's mandatory title defense against Omar Navais of Argentina are going well. Today's team arrived in the Northern Ireland capital of Belfast last weekend to finalize their preparations for the fight that will be held at the SSE Arena this coming Saturday. This is the same venue where Tete made world boxing history when he stopped compatriot Sboniso Gonya in 11 seconds during his first defense in November last year. The mood here is like home. It's like we are walking the streets of from Tanzania and Tangin village. Everybody recognizes Zolan, they know him, they like him, and uh, they, 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 they know that when they see him, they see greatness. They know Navayas too, because I think it looks like he's been here before, and uh, they know that he's got a very good record, so they are looking forward to a very good fight. But uh, we have left you no know, stone unturned, we are making sure that uh, whatever he brings, we have the answers. We have uh, studied all his strengths, and uh, we have uh, prepared to compromise and set aside everything he puts in front of us so the rest can take care of itself. The former Boxing South Africa BSA Director of Operations says they are experiencing weather challenges in Belfast. With the country in the middle of winter, temperatures are currently very low, which makes it difficult for them to leave the hotel at times. It's cold here. We, we don't dare venture out of the hotel because the, the, the gym is also here inside. So we are not taking chances. We are indoors, always, all the time, preparing for the fight, talking about the fight, and doing all sorts of things. And once we get out, we know what we are going to get from the people. So the less they see of us at this point, the better for us until they get us at, on Wednesday at the public workout and also for the pre-fight medical. The South African Football Association SAFA President Denis Jordan has pledged unqualified support for Morocco's bid to host the 2026 World Cup. Morocco is up against a joint bid from Canada, Mexico, United States, and is aiming to become the second African country to host the World Cup after South Africa in 2010. Morocco are making their fifth bid to host the tournament. They have previously campaigned for the right to organize the 1994, 1998, 2006, and 2010 editions. Still with football news, South Africa's Ajax Cape Town and Zimbabwe's Tendai Ndoro Meta against the PSL is likely to dominate the news space this week at the National Soccer League Board of Governors meeting that set at the OR Dambo International Airport also touched on it. FIFA rules stipulate that the player can be registered by three clubs in the season but only play for two. PSL chairman Ivan Koza touches on implications of this case on their scheduling, particularly the playoffs. One of the agenda items you know, for this meeting of the Board of Governors is to deal precisely with that matter, uh, but they are not going to deal with the merits of it, going to deal with the implications of this case. So what is the best route you know, to follow to make sure that we make sure we minimize the disruption it might cause going forward. So we are hoping that we're going to give them a report back of what happened in the arbitration, and what happened with the report back from FIFA, where, where do you go from here? to mitigate any kind of delay or stretching the matter to a point where it's going to affect the playoffs. So this meeting is one of the reasons why it's been called to deal with that very important you know, uh, eventuality.
Lastly, Japan's Yuki Kauchi and America's Desiree Linden scored stunning victories in a wet and windy Boston Marathon. Kauchi ran down defending champion Jeffrey Kirui of Kenya in an unofficial, unofficial two hours, 15 minutes and 5-4 seconds. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, DRC's electoral body reassures voters about the use of electronic voting machines. Cameroon warns against the release of classified information on social media. And crisis looms in Nigeria as health workers threaten to go on strike. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magadza and Khomuzomo Pulane, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.